No what? No what? I just switched to Geico and got more. More? Got a company I can trust. That's a heck of a lot more. Over 75 years of great savings and service. You can't argue with more. Why would you? Geico. Expect great savings and a whole lot more. Going on. Uh, I'm selling insurance now. And, uh... <laughs> no. The, uh... <clears throat> what was the point of that commercial? What was the key word there? More. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, more. In fact, I've got, I've got a cuter video, one uh, that, that you will really enjoy uh, even much more than that one. Check this one out. Now, she's just adorable, isn't she? Okay, so that is my granddaughter, Asher. Uh, she is 18 months old, uh, thereabout, and uh, she can't talk yet, but she can communicate. Now, some of you may know sign language. Do you know what she, she was saying? More, more. So I had been giving her just a little bit of ice cream, and you know what she wanted, right? More, more. She made sure that she was communicating with Pop Pop that she wanted more. So it's also my, uh, I've got two, two grandkids that are living with me right now. Uh, Asher is not one of them, but uh, Keller uh, is two and a half, and his favorite word is more, more. I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, what it is as long as he gets more if he likes it. Um, here's the deal. The cry of our heart is for more. More dessert, more friends, more fun, more love, more money, more success, more power, more influence, more health, more happiness, more peace. The cry for more is a God-given desire, a desire that God has put in our hearts. The problem is, the problem is, is that sin has corrupted our desires, also known as our thirst. We're going to talk a lot about thirst this morning. Such that, sin has corrupted our, our desires such that we look in the wrong places to have our heart's desires fulfilled. Enter Jesus passage that we're going to look at this morning, John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, addresses our cry for more and very, very succinctly explains how to enjoy more. The scripture says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone is thirsty, Those who believed in him were to receive. He was talking to a group of people 
who were in the middle of one of the biggest spiritual celebrations of the year. Their heart, the cry of their heart was, there's got to be more than what we're experiencing. This is what I want you to hear this morning. Jesus is the fountain of life, and he is sufficient to satisfy your thirst for more. Let's pray. Father, would you speak this morning as we look into your word? Would you use your word to capture our mind's attention and our heart's affection? Would you show us how we can experience the more that we all desire? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going we're gonna to walk through this text. Uh, this on the last day of the feast the great day so let me give you a little bit of context to what is going on here in John chapter 7 uh, Jesus is at what is known as the feast of tabernacles also known as the feast of booths also known as the feast of in gathering also known as Sukkoth also known as simply as the feast the feast Feast of Tabernacles was one of three pilgrim feasts. Now, what that means is that there were three feasts that, that God had ordained that all adult men had to travel to Jerusalem for to celebrate. Those three feasts, uh, at least one of them you have heard of, the Feast of Passover, and then there was the Feast of Weeks, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. And... The feasts were given really for three different reasons. Commemoration, celebration, and anticipation. In the case of the Feast of Tabernacles, they were commemorating the wandering of the Israelites in the desert for 40 years when the Israelites lived in, let's call them tents, okay? And so what happened at the Feast of Tabernacles now during Jesus' time is Everybody moved out of their houses and they built booths or tents, makeshift houses. Uh, and so just picture thousands and thousands of makeshift structures in and around Jerusalem because, because men have come from all over the country to be here for the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they're commemorating, they're remembering how God had provided for them when they were in the wilderness. They're also celebrating they're celebrating the last harvest uh, before the onset of the winter rains. And they are also anticipating the great ingathering for the coming year. They were anticipating that God was going to continue to provide for them. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles uh, fell in the fall of the year. You had three major religious celebrations for the Jewish people that kind of went bang, bang, bang. You had uh, Rosh Hashanah, which was the beginning of the Jewish New Year. Then you had Yom Kippur. And then five days after the end of Yom Kippur, you had the Feast of Tabernacles. Boom, boom, boom. Just a lot of, of Jewish celebrating going on during that time of the year. The Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem had a real party-like atmosphere. And there were a lot of 
traditions that were taking place during the time of Jesus. One of those traditions was performed at night. There were four huge menorahs that were set to illuminate the entire temple area. In actuality, they were so large that each of the stems of the menorahs formed a torch. The wicks were made up um, from the worn out linen garments of the priests. And as the smaller torches were carried to light the procession, the people danced and they played instruments and there was just a big party and celebration going on. The, the Levites would chant 15 different psalms during this time. One psalm for each of the 15 steps that led from the court of the Israelites to the court of the women. So just kind of picture in your mind what this is looking like. Thousands of people, these huge uh, bonfires going up that's just lighting up the whole temple area. It was an awesome, awesome scene as the walls of the temple were just bathed in the glow of the torch-lit night. So that happened at night. One of the other traditions, ceremonies, was, was, was the rite of the water libation or the outpouring of the water. And on the first morning of the feast, a procession of priests went down to the pool of Siloam to bring up to the temple a golden container of water sufficient to last throughout the seven days of the feast. Now you're going to hear more about the pool of Siloam when we get to John chapter 9. You may already remember that that's where Jesus healed a blind man. Now the pool of Siloam was the only freshwater source inside the walls of Jerusalem. King Hezekiah had had it built back in the 8th century BC in case Jerusalem was ever besieged. So the water was brought up with great ceremony. The shofar, you know what a shofar is? The shofar was blown. The pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the feast waved their, here's a word for you, lulavs. They waved their lulavs, their palm branches, as the priests carried the water. And again, psalms were being recited. And then the priest on duty poured out the contents of two silver bowls. One held water and the other held wine. And this was an act of prayer and an expression of dependence upon God to pour out his blessing of rain upon the earth. Now, on the last day, this, the text says, on the last day, the great day, on the last day of the feast, this water outpouring reached its climax. The priests circled the altar seven times and then poured out the water with great pomp and ceremony. And this was what is known as Hoshana Rabbah. Okay, see, I've got my, my rabbi hat on right now, right? I'm uh, telling you more than you ever wanted to know, right? But I want you to picture this scene. I want you to get an idea of just how huge this ceremony is that's going on uh, because as this, on this great day of the feast, this last time... Last day, while this water libation is taking place, Jesus does something very significant. So, so you've got the scene in your mind. The water is being poured out on the altar. All eyes are on the priest. The throngs of people are remembering how God provided for their ancestors when they were dying of thirst in the wilderness. 
And then the scripture says in John chapter 7, it says that Jesus stood up while all this was going on, stood up and cried out. All right. We're going to see what he cries out in just a second, but Jesus answers the cry of our heart for more with a cry of his own. There is incredible passion in his voice. There is deep, heartfelt emotion. There is pleading that is going on. There is an urgency in his voice. Why? Because he knew that everyone within the sound of his voice was crying for more. We've already seen this in the book of John. The early disciples in John chapter 1 who had been following John the Baptist, they wanted more. Nicodemus in chapter 3, when he approached Jesus at night, he came to him because he wanted more. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman that Jesus encounters, she wanted more. The man in chapter 5 who was begging to be healed wanted more. More. Jesus knew that the cry of our heart was for more. And so he stands up and he cries and he says this, If anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts. Now he's, he's not saying here that some people thirst and others don't. Everyone gets thirsty. It's more a question of are your thirsts being satisfied. Perhaps you remember uh, Psalm chapter 63 where David, King David, the man who had it all, said earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no provision. He's thirsting for God. His soul wants more. His soul wants more. David had everything that a man could possibly want, but he still wanted more. His soul was dying of thirst. You know, advertisers, if you watch television, appeal to our thirsts with just about every advertisement that you will see on television. You remember this old ad right here? Sprite, obey your thirst. So this advertisement suggests that Sprite is what we need to satisfy our thirst. I'm here to tell you that it is not. It is not what will satisfy your thirst. What our bodies need, what our bodies really need and crave is what? Water. Mm. Oh, that tastes good. That tastes good. Nice, cool, refreshing, clean water. It's nothing fancy. It's nothing bubbly. It's nothing caffeinated. It's just refreshing water. We will die without water. You know what's recommended that we drink every day? You guys know this. Eight ounces of eight Eight glasses of eight ounces of water a day, right? Okay, that's, what does that equal to? Okay, which is, ha which is what? Half a, gallon, a half a gallon. It is half a gallon of water. 
Um, if we do not get enough water, you know what happens to us, right? We get dehydrated. Dehydrated. You know what dehydration looks like? Some of you, some of you have been dehydrated. You know what this feels like. Uh, you get a dry or sticky mouth. You start to get headaches. You get muscle cramps. Uh, your skin starts to dry out. Your heartbeat accelerates. Uh, your eyes begin to look sunken. You have this lack of energy. Um, you might even faint because you're dehydrated. Our souls likewise need living water to thrive. And when we don't get it, we become spiritually dehydrated. Do you know what spiritual dehydration looks like? Spiritual dehydration looks like this. You start to become lethargic towards spiritual things. This is still picking me up. You start to become lethargic towards spiritual things, which includes this. No or little desire to read the Word of God. And prayer, if it happens at all, then at best it's rote and it's routine. There's little sense of really being connected to God. Worship is something that you just endure rather than enjoy. Temptations become stronger in your life the idols in your life call out louder. Your ability to sin, to fight sin, is dismally weak. And loving others is a chore instead of an overflow. Some of us in this room are spiritually dehydrated right now. And just as I was reading through that list, you began to recognize that you need living water to experience the more of the Christian life. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what he said. He said, let anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me. It's an open invitation. In fact, in fact, he has already taken the biggest step in coming to us. That's what the incarnation is all about. God initiated. Jesus came to us. He left heaven and eternity, and he took the biggest step of all, and he came to us. And not only did he just come to earth, in Revelation 3.20, a verse that many of you are familiar with, says, Jesus, Jesus was counseling the lukewarm Laodiceans. And he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him. See, see he invites us to just take this little step of opening the door and coming. He's already, he's already taken the biggest step. He's waiting outside the door of our heart right now just for us to open the door and welcome him in. He has, he has done the coming. We need to take that last step and come to him. And notice, notice what he says. He says, come to me. He is the source of refreshment. He is the source of eternal satisfaction. He is the source of unspeakable joy. 
we can't settle for secondary sources. We need to go to Jesus, to the Word of God. When we settle for secondary sources, then sometimes we still end up wanting more. Now, some of the secondary sources are really good, but some of them can be deadly. What is a secondary source, okay? Books written about God. Some of them are really good. Some of them can be deadly. Just because a book talks about God or has God in the title, be careful. Filter your reading through the lens of what Scripture says. A book written about God is not the source. Just because a preacher uses the Bible, it doesn't mean that he is preaching the Word of God. There are many, many false preachers out there. Be careful who you listen to. Filter everything that you are listening to through the lens of Scripture. Let me tell you a story. In fact, I told this story many years ago. Some of you might remember it. But uh, back in 1983, I was a seminary student up in Massachusetts, and a buddy of mine and I took a backpacking trip up to New Hampshire to the White Mountains. We, we had all our gear on. We, we hiked all the way up to the top of the mountain. We camped out. As we were making our way down the mountain, we stopped off at this stream. And I filled my canteen up with water so that I'd have plenty to drink on the way back down the mountain. Tasted good. I mean, it was clear, refreshing to the taste water. Got home, and the next day I started dying. What I did not know was that there were these was just eating my gut up. I promise you that I told my wife, I just want to die. It was the worst I have ever felt in my entire life. And that went on for like two days. It was terrible because I had, I had drinking, drunk, drank, whatever the word is. I had, uh, I had drank some water that was contaminated. I didn't get it from the source. If I had gotten it from the source, then I wouldn't have had a problem. But way downstream, it had had a chance to pick up these little minute bacteria that just about killed me. Just about killed me. You have to be very, very careful. When you don't Get your living water from the source. You know that if you are reading from this book, then you can trust what you read. But if you are listening to a preacher, if you're listening to a book written by a man, you just have to filter everything that you read through the lens of Scripture. Jesus says, come to me for your living water. Now, now, don't you think it's kind of strange that he would say, come to me and drink? He says, come to me and drink. <clears throat> That's just sort of a weird thing to say, unless you understand the context and the people that he's talking to. These were people who knew the scriptures. They knew their Bibles. 
They knew what Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, God's people were drinking. They were just drinking from the wrong place, much like we in the church do today. They were looking to have their thirsts quenched in ways that would not ultimately satisfy it would sort of be like this, me being down in Haiti, working all day. Tom, you will remember being down there and how hot it is and how thirsty you get when you're down there. And all you want is, is just a nice swig of cold, filtered water. <laughs> and if instead somebody comes up and hands you a milkshake. Now, I love milkshakes. I mean, milkshakes generally taste really good, but that's not what I want when I'm in Haiti and I am just dying of thirst. I want cool, refreshing water. Milkshakes taste good, but they don't satisfy your thirst. So what, is it, what does Jesus say about how do we drink? Here's what he says. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living water. Drinking equals believing. Drinking from Jesus equals believing. So what does it mean to believe? This verse gives a really graphic description about how you can discern true belief. Look at the words. It says, out of his heart, out of. True belief looks like this. It's not determined by what goes into your life. Not how many Bible verses you can quote, not how many times you've read the Bible, not how often you go to church or how much money you give. It's the Word of God flowing into you, through you, and then out of you that defines true belief. And notice it says, Jesus says, out of his heart. Literally, literally, it says out of his belly. Now, different translations, depending on what you have, might, might use innermost being, out of his innermost being, or, or, or from deep within him. But literally, the word is out of his belly. I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Now, let me, let me see if I can illustrate what it means uh, when he's talking about belly here. Okay, I got a joke for you. All right, Gene, you ready for this? All right. This, this teacher was describing the dolphin and its habits. And children, she said impressively, a single dolphin will have 2,000 offspring. Goodness, grasped the little girl in the back row. How about the married ones? <laughs> okay, okay. All right, here's another one. Here's another one. <clears throat> little Emily was at her first wedding and she, she gaped at the entire ceremony. Her mother asked, what do you mean? Well, she went down the aisle with one man and came back out with another one. <laughs> All right, by the way, by the way, 
If you want more corny jokes like that, come to the Valentine's banquet, okay? <laughs> They're called Shay's Stupid Jokes, okay? Come to the Valentine's banquet. But I got a little bit of kind laughter out of you guys just by telling those jokes. But I didn't really hear any real belly laughter. Have you ever laughed so hard that it came from deep within you and you, you just couldn't stop it or control it? I mean, you know, stuff is coming out of your mouth and out of your nose, you know. I mean, just a deep, deep belly laugh. You know, there aren't many things that feel as good as a really good belly laugh. It overflows out of you, and you couldn't stop it even if you tried. And usually it makes other people stop and want to get in on the joke, and usually they'll start laughing just because you're laughing. That's a good belly laugh. That's what Jesus is talking about here, about this living water flowing out of your innermost being, out of your belly, uh, does that describe the way that you believe? Does it describe the way that I believe? Jesus says that it's as if rivers of living waters are flowing out of you, gushing out of you, and there is nothing that you can do to stop the flow. Because Jesus is not just in you, but he's flowing through you, and then he's overflowing out of you. Note this other word. Note that he says rivers of living water. Not just river. It's rivers. It's plural. <clears throat> I love of peace, a river of patience. It's these rivers that are flowing out of you. It just kind of makes me want to sing a song. I got a river of life flowing out. Okay, never mind. Uh, <laughs> rivers of living water are flowing out of you when you believe. Scripture says, now Jesus said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were about to receive. So if you don't have these rivers of living water flowing out of you, there are a couple of possibilities. One is, one possibility is the Spirit of God is not in you. You have never experienced salvation in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit has not come and taken up residence within you. That is one very real possibility. Another possibility if you don't have rivers of living water flowing out of you, is this. The Spirit's in you, but there is an obstruction that is keeping Him from flowing through you and then overflowing out of you, that is keeping you from experiencing the more that you are thirsty for. Anybody here ever been to Niagara Falls? All right. Maybe 10% of you have been to Niagara Falls. Did you know that on March 29th, 1848, there was an enormous ice dam formed at the source of the Niagara River on the eastern shore of Lake Erie? 
And just after midnight, the thunderous sound of water surging over the great falls at Niagara came to a halt as the flow of water became severely restricted due to an ice jam. Can you even imagine those waters just slowing down to a mere trickle because of an ice jam back at the source of the waters? This is a picture of a lot of our churches today. The Spirit of God should be gushing in and through and out of our lives, but the only thing that the world around us sees sometimes is just a trickle. Don't you want the world to see more? Don't you want to experience more? Don't you want rivers of refreshing, invigorating, life-giving, thirst-quenching, soul-satisfying water to flow in, through, and out of you? I do. I want our church to look like that. So how do we experience more? What are, what, what are some really practical things that we can do to experience the more that Jesus is talking about? Preacher from the olden days, D.L. Moody, said this, he said, the only way to keep a broken vessel full is to keep the faucet running. We are broken people. We are broken people. That's what sin has done to us. We are broken people. So the first thing that we need to do, I'm going to give you two things. First thing that we as the church needs to do is acknowledge our brokenness and repent. You know, the definition of insanity, you've heard Mark say it many times, the definition of insanity applies here. If we, we can't keep doing the same thing and expect different results. We need to repent. We need to turn away from trying to quench our thirst in places where our thirst cannot be quenched. So repent and be specific when you come to God and tell God that you have tried to satisfy the desires of your heart by doing this and by doing this and by doing this. And all it's done is left you wanting more. The second thing is this. It's nothing profound. It's something I hope that you're all doing. It's just this. Read, ponder, and put into practice the Word of God. Read, ponder, and put into practice the Word of God. Why? Because there can be no living water flowing through you and out of you unless it is flowing into you. Unless it is flowing into you. Word of God. Living water. Drink. Scripture says like newborn babes. Long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into your salvation. The Bible, the Bible closes with this invitation in Revelation chapter 22. It says this, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It is free. 
So drink freely. Drink to your heart's content. That's what the scripture says. Because Jesus, the fountain of life, is sufficient to satisfy your thirst for more. Drink. I want to pray for us. I'm, and this is going to probably sound a little bit different. Because <clears throat> I have done something that I rarely ever do when I pray in front of a group. Um, I have written out my prayer for this morning. So I want to pray for us, but understand I'm reading this prayer. It doesn't make it any less of a prayer just because I have written it out. But just understand it is a prayer that I have written, so my eyes are going to be open. Okay? But pray with me. Pray with me. Father, the cry of our heart is that we want more. We want more joy. We want more peace in our lives. We want to be more patient and loving and faithful and self-controlled. We want to experience more life that is truly life. We want rivers, not trickles of living water flowing into us and through us and overflowing out of us into the lives of others. We've tried our best to fix the problem, but we are broken people who have only come up with broken solutions. And so we confess that we have forsaken you, the fountain of living waters, and we've hewed out broken cisterns for ourselves that cannot hold water. We've turned away from the source of living water, and we have tried to quench our thirst with that which cannot satisfy. Father, we need you to change our hearts. We need you to convict us. We need you to compel us by your Spirit to repent of our sin and to desire for ourselves what you desire for us. We need you to thrill us all over again with the gospel so that the cross energizes us with hope and fuels us with power to boldly live out this life you have called us to. And Father, we need you to create within us a holy desperation so that prayer becomes like the air that we breathe. We ask that you would use our little church here in North Durham to do great things for the kingdom, that you would do more than we can even ask or imagine, that the gospel would triumph in our lives and through our lives so that those around us who are blinded by the evil one and who don't even know that they are walking in darkness will begin to thirst for that which only you can satisfy. Lord, we ask that you will do these things and thus bring honor and glory to the awesome name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.